hope uh, you didn't eat too heavy for lunch. I hope you're ready for a sparkling conversation because we're about to sparkle on them real quick. Uh, my name is Shaka. I'm the founder and director of Dawa. Diversity, oh, thank you, appreciate that. <laughs> Diversity, awareness, and wellness in action. We started in 2019 to serve a very specific community in Austin that um, is having a lot of issues being able to stay and remain in this city. I've been saying in each panel, I'm just gonna continue uh, to let y'all know that are coming from out of town. Since 1991, when the city declared itself the live music capital of the world, the black population in Austin has gone down from 12% to under 7%. So there's a direct correlation between this city becoming a cool place to be for some of y'all that come in and you just decide, hey, maybe I could live here. There's a direct correlation between that thought and people like you moving here and the displacement of black people. And it's, it's uh, not really um, at the forefront like it should be. And so me as someone that moved here 13 years ago, have a career in music. I found a lot of obstacles. I found a lot of challenges in different spaces that I was in. And when I got to a place of sustainability as, a, as an artist, I decided to start Dawa because this city has failed specific communities over and over again. You hear the language, the mayor had, a, had a, some type of statement about the systemic history of racism, but there's no direct action happening. Or not, let me not say no, because I don't want to minimize it, but there's not enough. And so, since Dawa was started in 2019, we distributed $153,000 to the BIPOC community. Those are people that are teachers, they're social workers, healthcare providers. We call it giving to the givers. Because the very important work that's done, we're, talking, we're about to talk about farming, the farmers, the very important work that's done is undervalued in our society, where it's about products and, and, and creating things that we don't necessarily need. We need healers. We need medicine in our community. And there are people that want to follow that path that don't have the opportunity to because that work is really not being valued. So we created Dawa, or I created, specifically, I created Dawa in 2019 to address that because equity is not just about the talk. You have to bring resources. Do y'all hear what I'm saying? Okay, let me hear like a little noise or something. Okay. So... Following that up, this year is the first year of something called Vision 8291, um, which is a direct response to the city plan of 1928, which forcibly moved the black community that was spread out throughout the city to one side of the city known as East Austin. That had an incredible impact on economics, spirit, you name it. And we feel like organizations and companies like South by Southwest have a responsibility to, uh, because of the wealth that has been generated through conferences and things like that, they have a responsibility to community that are impacted directly or indirectly by the growth and things that um, events like this create. And so with that, we've had panels all day. This is our third panel today. And we're talking about black to the land, going back to the land as a person that identifies as African-American or black. What is that experience like? What are some of the challenges? Why should we be thinking about going back to the land? Those are the things that we're gonna be talking about today. And we have some very, very special guests here. One that has flown in from North Carolina, which is, you know, thank you for being here. He's gotta leave tomorrow, so it's very, very, uh, 
I'm just very excited that he's here, and also Lisa Boyd. I'm gonna let y'all introduce yourselves, tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how that's related to food or land right now. Thank you. So my name is Lisa Boyd, and I've been living in Austin, in the Austin area, for about seven years now. Um, I started gardening just as a hobby about four years ago, and I, I really enjoyed it, but I had some struggles, just, you know, sometimes new gardeners have struggles, which is totally fine. And um, I realized that I, I wasn't able to do it in my space. I lived in an apartment. Um, I didn't have enough sunlight. My, you know, everything was just dying or not growing. So um, I was able to venture out, find a community garden, and learn how to garden that way. I really enjoyed the community. I loved having access to resources. I also knew of some programs in town where I could um, get free seeds or get free transplants a couple times a year. And so I, I just felt really supported in that way. However, I noticed that in some spaces, I realized I was the only person of color, I was the only black woman. Um, even sometimes going to the nursery to like pick out you know, plants and do your thing there. Sometimes you, you know, encounter racism or you, you don't always feel as welcomed as other customers might. And so um, I noticed around 2020, right? You know, January 2020, right before the pandemic began, um, I was in, you know, a group, um, a forum, and there were people local to Austin showing interest in starting a community garden. And so there was so much interest that turned into like a smaller chat and people were interested in, you know, getting things together. And I just happened to have had some resources. I passed it along. They said, well, we need someone to lead it. Can you do it? I said, sure. Did not really intend to, you know, start anything big. I was just there to help. And then about a month later, February 2020, right before COVID really hit us hard, the Rooted in Melanin in Initiative was born. And that's a nonprofit that helps people of color in Austin, specifically people of color, to learn how to cultivate their own food. Um, if you need a space to garden or if you need resources, whatever you need, we're here to help you, provide that for you. And so I'm proud to say we've, you know, we have a network of about 500 individuals. We're connected to other businesses and nonprofits that support us. And it's a safe space for people of color, black people, to learn how to do that without judgment and really feel like they're a part of the food cultivation movement because it's growing, it's necessary. Um, and we've been excluded from it for years, you know, for hundreds of years, generationally, especially in the, in the United States. So it's just, you know, it's my mission, my hope and desire that everyone around me can learn that if that's their desire. Ashe. Uh, I'm Justin Robinson, I'm from North Carolina. Um, I wouldn't call my story really back to the land. I really never left it. My parents grew up on farms. My grandparents were farmers. Uh, and I'm not a farmer um, <laughs> because I don't like tending vegetables. Uh, what I do for my, even though I do live on a farm, uh, I'm a plant scientist. That's what I do for my um, everyday work. Um, and, but I do live on a farm where other people are actively farming. And very similar to the model that you're talking about, um, they call their model farm share, which is un instead of like a community garden where everybody's got their own little plot, it's just the farm, right? I think it's like two acres at this point. And everybody comes and helps out on everything. And you take home all of the stuff, you know, you know what I mean? And so it encourages people, it especially encourages families to come out together. Um, you pay some nominal fee. I think it's a very small fee. And you take home 
what you helped to grow. You know what I mean? So it, it basically allows people to like come into this, you know, uh, into farming at any stage, you know what I mean? At any stage and be able to have like really guided, um, a lot of guidance through it, right? So that you're not having to figure out exactly what to do with this seed, with this, you know, you know and there's a lot of experimentation still. Um, and so while I'm not involved in that directly, I'm sort of on the other side. I'm in the forest side. I'm in the medicine side. That's a lot of what I'm doing, um, which they go together. You know what I mean? Learning how to grow your own food, your own medicine, your own fuel, your own dyes, your own all the things that you need in life, right? Most of them do come from, can come from right around us. And that has been how humans have lived literally for all of human history up until, until the last, I don't know, 150, 200 years. When did you discover your kind of relationship with plants? I mean, you say you're on a farm, so talk about that. Um, Lisa, also talk about your relationship with plants. When did, did that start at that time in the in 2000s, or was there some type of relationship you felt before that? But I would like to start with you, Justin. Uh, when did you feel like I have a relationship? Um, well, I'm following the, the lineage of my ancestors. My grandfather, both my grandfathers were farmers. Uh, my, fa my mother's father, was an incredible plantsman, like just could make anything grow anywhere at any time, okay? Like, and so every time I build a garden, I'm always basing it off my grandfather's garden. Um, and so my, on my father's side, there's a strong line in his, on his, through my patrilineal side of men medicine makers, right? So it's like, I'm like dyed in the wool. I, there was just, there was no way for me to, get around going into this field in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, in West Africa, I would be called, what would be called a village man. That's who I am. So you, you never felt like you would do something else? Or? No. Not wow. really. <laughs> I have done other stuff, but this is where my, like, my destiny is. And you always knew that from, from young? Yeah, I was always in the, I, when I was a kid, I would like, so, <laughs> We lived, we sort of moved into a, a white neighborhood when I was like 10, and I went to a new school and all this, but on the way to the school, I could either walk down the sidewalk to the school or take the long way through the woods, and I always took the long way through the woods to school. So I would come to school with like my clothes all torn and scratched up, and my mom would be like, what happened to you when I got, but I would literally take the long way through the woods just to go to school every, every day that I could. That's beautiful. How about, how about you, Lisa? I love that. That reminds me of when I drive home, and I'm like, I think I'm going to go this way because it's just covered with trees. <laughs> I love that feeling. Um, so I grew up with my grandparents, and I mean, every I feel like every time we got sick, every time something about health came up, they had an herb or they had a tea or something like that. So I think very early on I knew that a lot of things came from the earth. Um, we were very much interested in natural and organic things as often as, you know, we can get our hands on it. And then when I was a little bit older, um, actually when I moved to Austin, I was involved with an organization and they wanted us to take garden classes to teach other people how to garden, um, which I thought was really neat. I wasn't super interested in it at that time, but, um, you know, they gave us some transplants and I think I had like either sage or thyme. And I remember I, you know, I was excited to take care of it. And then one day it just died. And it's like at that moment, I really felt like I just needed to fix it. And I just felt like, wow, this, you know, it was doing so well. It's, it's almost like there was some personification with it. And, um, 
and then I just felt like, you know, I have to, I have to figure out how to, how to do this right, how to grow this. And then it just, it just kind of spilled into like other herbs, like, oh, wow, I love cooking with basil. Let me learn how to do that. Or, oh, let me, you know, learn how to grow beans. I love beans or something like that. And pretty soon I just, I don't know, it's like the garden bug bit you. And I just felt really attached and, um, you know, even like as I do the work now and I'm, I'm planting something or I'm sticking my hands in the soil, I just feel really connected. I feel like, you know, this is, this is something very natural and something that we've been doing, you know, for thousands of years. It's something that we've led others in doing. So it just, it just feels right at this point. I'm going to uh, take this like specifically to Austin and, and what you think what did you think the conversation is like around food right now? What are some of the maybe limitations, some of the challenges in that conversation? Certainly. Um, I think that some of the challenges that we face here in Austin is just, you know, going from one neighborhood and seeing, um, you know, maybe not having a, a grocery store that has a great selection of groceries and then maybe five minutes down the street you're in a gentrified neighborhood and you go to that H-E-B and there's, you know, all the organic things, everything's fresh, green, um, seeing things like that and knowing that um, it's like there's such a division when it comes to access to fresh and healthy food. Um, even just right outside of Austin and places like Del Valley or even, um, like I live in Maynard, Texas right now, um, seeing, you know, that if you don't have a car, you, it's really difficult to get to a grocery store that does have vegetables. You're kind of limited to a convenience store or just a store that has a lot of processed shelf-stable food. And so I think that's an issue that has, um, you know, people have been trying to kind of solve that issue and solve um, issues with accessibility. Um, I'm not sure why um, there is such a gap and why that's happened for, you know, so long and even until now. I also think that with COVID um, happening, there are a lot of emergency um, systems in place to serve people, but some of those have been taken away. Um, since then, you know, since things have kind of cleared up, if you will. And so that's, you know, that's an example of things, you know, being looked at, examined, but not necessarily being completely fixed or, you know, certain neighborhoods not being reached. I think there's just a division and, um, you know, that division needs to be mended and sorted out. And do you have like ideas about that or do you are, are you in conversation with people who are thinking about that because i know there's a lot of stuff i'm just not as aware of it as as i should be and i want to be more aware of it are there things happening in the city i know there's like some type of food plan happening right now do you know about that can you just maybe talk to the audience a little bit about that sure um i have heard some talks about the food plan um i'm not completely like i'll be honest i'm not completely like sure of where it is now but i think the intention was to um have things put in place so that um you know, there's almost like a system of reparations given to um, certain neighborhoods that may have suffered from uh, just like being separated or, you know, previously being gentrified and reaching out to those communities. Um, the logistics of it, I think there's some sort of a gap between the city of Austin and um, the people who need that the most. Um, I've also, you know, just been in talks with people. I, I will say that there are organizations um, like food banks and food distribution that exists that will go to grocery stores and take, you know, certain vegetables and um, other sets of groceries and pass them out. So I believe that that's, um, you know, that's something that's happening. That's something on a small scale. Um, so those are some examples, but I know certain populations like the homeless population or, um, you know, just like I remember a few years ago, they, they took the buses and they rerouted them. They like changed the routing system, um, things like that 
do prevent people from being able to access, you know, certain grocery stores or um, certain, you know, maybe like community gardens and things like that. So there, there is a bridge there. Um, I think systemically that could be worked on so that, um, and then also just communicating with like local, um, you know, local organizations, local churches, you know, places where people do go that might need help and, you know, seeing what the need is and there could be some more repair there. So there's definitely, um, you know, just reaching out to the correct people instead of there being that separation. I'll jump over here to you, Justin. Um, now, I know you were talking about like a cooperative farm share type of thing. Now, can you take us kind of back to like the origins of that, how that started? And then I, I, I think people have kind of like a fantasy about this type of thing. You know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, I'm going to move out to the land and, you know, I'm going to just be with my friends and grow food. Um, I don't know if that's the reality or not, but I feel like probably not. So can you talk about some of the challenges of that type of uh, activity? So, yeah, me and eight other people in 2012, we count our age by our oldest child, um, <laughs> so she's 11. Um, we got together to, we knew we, we didn't know exactly what we wanted to do, but we knew we wanted to have land and own it collectively. We didn't know exactly what we wanted to do with it. Um, and so we just sort of started meeting. We got an LLC. We started taking up dues. Um, and we, the dues that we ended up taking up ended up becoming the down payment for our land. Um, you know, the, you know, some certain people had good job, really good jobs at that moment. That helped and good credit, right? You, you got to have good credit to be able to purchase things unless you have the cash in your hands. Um, and it ends up being now it's seven of us instead of the original nine or twelve or however many it was. That's normal. Um, but it is, you know, it's great. It's it's a lot of work, right? Because mostly we're not used to living collectively. We are used to living. As, as individual household units in an apartment or a condo or one house in a suburb or whatever where we're not connected to our neighbors and what, you know, even though what we do affects our neighbors, it kind of doesn't matter almost unless you're cutting down a tree or something. You don't really have to interact with them. Um, and so it's a, it presents a really different understanding of how to live. I mean, it's, you know, we, we're people, so we get into conflicts all the time. Um, and it's at the same time, you know you have somebody who has your back at every moment. You understand, like it's both. It's all the conflict and all the drama and all the, I don't mean to say it's that much drama, but there is drama for sure because it's people. Um, and all the like, okay, I wanna do this one thing over here in this corner of the land and then you have to have a whole process about it. <laughs> right, it's not gonna be quick. But when people are, when, when, when everybody can come to the decision, everybody's ready to support you and help you and help make that happen. It's just not going to be fast, right? But you've got a whole team behind you, right, when it's time to do that. Like, we watch the kids, you know, it's just, it just becomes this, it just becomes this, this thing that is greater than any of us singly could have done as households. And just to be practical, you know, we're all black and brown people, and so, we knew we couldn't afford the land as individuals. We just couldn't do it. It was not feasible for us. So it, it, it was both practical and going back to our roots of our communal roots um, to hold the land together. 
but but you had like a prior relationship with them. This wasn't just some cash you met at a coffee shop, was it? With some people, there was a prior relationship, but not everybody had a prior relationship with each other. Now, I don't necessarily advise that part, um, <laughs> but you know, you could put any kind of things together, and some would work, and some wouldn't. You know what I mean? You have to expect that people are gonna, you know, sort of fall by the wayside or come in or whatever. Um, like you would in any institution building, right? That wouldn't be different than starting a church or starting a school or anything. It was gonna, that's always gonna be true. Um, but the benefit of it much outweighs any sort of like minor inconvenience that we get of like, I'm just gonna do this and I'm gonna plan this out. Like I wanna build a new deck, you know, if I lived in my own you know, house, my own, you know, whatever, I'm gonna build a new deck and I'm gonna do it. Now you're not gonna do that, right? But it also means that you've got a whole you know, pot of like, of support and know-how and knowledge and money to help that happen when it's time to happen. And it may not happen on your own time scale. Again, the time thing is a, is, is a big deal. Um, but when it's ready to happen, it'll go, it can go faster and easier and you know, it'll, it gets to be something different. And, and how long were you like kind of working on the idea? Was it something like you thought of eight years before and then it kind of like, okay, this is the time or did it happen um, kind of rapidly? It probably took about three years from our first meeting. Um, to get on land, let's see, we landed on our land in 2016. And so we're on 48 acres, yeah, almost 50 acres, which is, you know, if you're thinking about buying land, you don't need that much land. Um, it's really hard to manage that much land. It's extremely difficult to manage. 33 of it is just in woods. We don't do anything with it in that sense because it's really difficult to manage that much land. These sort of like grandiose ideas of like, we need 100 acres. Do you need 100 acres? Because <laughs> you're not going to be able to manage it, right? That's the issue with owning land is the management of it. Most people don't, you'll, unless that is your only and one job, and even if it still were, you would not be able to manage it in the way that it really needs to be. Um, so I suggest, you know, do something smaller. I, my informal formula is that one, one person can handle about a quarter of an acre. Got it. I'm going to talk about the science of plants real quick, and I'm going to come back to you, Lisa. Um, you call yourself a plant scientist, botanist. Can you talk about kind of the ancestral aspect of that and then also just like the area that you're in, the land is very, the plants are very specific to that. So you can tell us some of the history of that land and the plants that are there and how you connect with that. Yeah, um, the ancestral stuff is it's just what it says. So both on my, it's, this is much stronger on my father's side. Um, people now will call those people herbalists or whatever. That's not the name we call it. The title for that person in our community is called They Go Down in the Woods. That's the, that's the title, <laughs> right? If you say that, you know what, who that person is. When you go get sick, you go see the person who goes down in the woods. That's the name of the person, right? It's not herbalist or medicine person or whatever. That's the title. And so the, my, the person who raised my grandfather, this is his uncle, he was one of those people. One of my great-great aunts was one of those people. My mother grew up in that tradition as well. Um, and so a lot of times those were both local plants or plants that you would be growing specifically for something. Now, my mother didn't do the growing of them, but she used them all, right? So whenever we would get sick, she'd just have this cabinet that just looked like full of sticks. <laughs> it would just be a cabinet that just was sticks and bark. And she was like, here, get this thing, and it would be the worst tasted stuff you like can imagine. Because it was just dried plants. That's all it was. She wouldn't sweeten it. She wouldn't do anything. She'd be like, here. 
Um, <laughs> so I got really used to the taste of you know raw plant medicine, like unadulterated. I can I can drink the bitterest stuff in the world now. Thanks, mom. <laughs> um, and so where we are, where I am in North Carolina, you know, is a very botanically rich area. Um, and so we have so many plants, right? There's all, there's lots, we have lots of indigenous groups still in North Carolina. And so their history with the plants is still strong. And so, you know, they've taught us lots of stuff, um, still learning from them currently. Um, and so we have, we have lots of resources and that's, that's where I'm focusing a lot of my attention on is like the medicinal aspects of these, of these wild plants, because the stuff that plants can do is crazy. Right. And then there's a whole other world of medicinal mushrooms and all that stuff. I mean, y'all might know about medicinal mushrooms, but um, there's there's lots more. There's like worlds and worlds and dimensions and dimensions of this. And we actually need more people studying and researching, especially coming from not just a white perspective. Right. Because there's, there's some research on that, but we need more coming from our ancestral understandings. Um, can you add just a little bit more on that? What do you mean when you say that our ancestral understandings for people? Oh, I mean as African people, right? Because African people, our ancestors were also indigenous people. We came from, you know, a, you know, agrarian people or city people, depending on who it was. But like any indigenous people of the earth, we have our own relationship to plants, um, to their history and their, you know, magical properties, their chemical properties, all of those things. You know, our ancestors were incredibly skilled plant people and we brought that with us right we brought our um we brought our plant knowledge with us we learned stuff from from other people as well um like any group of people would and so we have a lot of that just like sort of coursing through our bodies and again most humans do um but we often have some exceptional plant people coming through our lineage um and yeah we get to tap into that that's our story I'm gonna bring it back to you, Lisa. Um, what are some of the like, I guess, challenges that people that you know maybe join rooted in melanin? What are some of the challenges they face, like just kind of getting started? Because I know there's probably people out here that are thinking like, kind of like you, maybe I tried something and it didn't work. But like, what what kind of challenges are people coming to you with when they're trying to get started with food, growing their own food, things like that? Sure. Um, I think there's sometimes a challenge with. Um, um, accessing resources or just not having the space to do it. Like I mentioned, I lived in an apartment. Um, you know, most people that live in Austin um, don't own a home, right? We know because like it's it's so expensive to buy like a home here. So they might live like really far away. They might be in the outskirts, or they just they might be here like in an apartment and they want to know, you know, where can I grow something? Or you know, I tried to grow, but it you know it it just didn't do so well. So. Um, a solution to that is just partnering with other um, businesses that might have space, that might have a little plot of land, and being able to go there and, you know, work there and learn, have space to grow something, and also have tools and um, fertilizer seeds, all those things. And then another common problem is just knowledge. Um, so, you know, someone might want to be able to grow something, but they just don't know how, or they tried, but they might have done it in the wrong season. So, you know, just the education part, I think those two things um, are the biggest challenges, especially to um, people here in Austin. We've also seen some accessibility um, struggles, but like we started in the beginning of COVID where we couldn't really meet in person, but we were allowed to cultivate food. 
And so, um, you know, we were able to connect with a lot of people virtually online. And, um, you know, sometimes there were people who weren't able to necessarily connect online or um, they just had extra accessibility issues. You know, if they're connected to someone who can help them, they've come and they've, you know, been able to assist that way. So those are just different ways we've, you know, gotten around those issues. And then just being open to suggestions like listening to new problems and coming up with, with a solution for that. Yeah. Do you, do you personally have any plans on, like, a farm or something larger than, you know, growing in, in your home? And if, if not, are there people in the group that are thinking about those things? Definitely. <clears throat> We've had, um, so when we first started, we had someone who just let us use their backyard um, while they were here. They did end up moving, but we were able to access that space for about a year. And um, I think we wanted to pursue a slightly larger plot of land, about a quarter of acre, like you said, and, um, you know, have kind of like an open community um, garden slash food forest where people could go work there, but also like harvest. Um, but before we, you know, before we started that process, we just had so many people offering us smaller spaces around town. And so we thought, well, this is, you know, this is um, great for just connecting with our community and um, it's, you know, it's, it's more accessible. We can get to it more often. It's free and it's familiar. So I really liked that. Um, there is a, there is a program in Austin that supports um, starting community gardens. And so that's something that a lot of community gardens in Austin, they're probably, they probably come from um, that program. That program does take a long time though. And it takes about a year just to get it started. And there's so much that they want to see along the way. So that's something that we were considering pursuing. However, we just, um, you know, because of the time and because of other people volunteering their spaces, we never pursued that. But that's, that's something that, um, that's a great option if, you know, anyone did want to pursue that and, you know, in this area, that's another way to get support as well. Um, it's something that I'd like for us to do in the future. If, if everything comes together, I'd love to see that as well. And as an organization, are you like kind of assisting people, like supporting them, like giving them guidance to go over here, go over there, or like when they come to you, if someone from the audience decided to come to you, like what kind of support could they get besides the online form from um, Rudin Mellon? Yeah, that's honestly, I tell people all the time, send me a picture of your plant. You can call me, you can ask me. I have like a personal seed library at home. Um, I can connect you to someone who might have something that you need or, you know, like you might be interested in growing um, a tree. I'm not a huge um, tree grower. That's not something I'm like super versed in. Like I am, um, you know, like plants and vegetables and things like that. So I have other people that I can connect them with, um, other places in town that are offering spaces or plots and things like that. So I tell people come to me directly all the time. You can't, you know, don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed or something like that. That's something, you know, that's what the community is for. So we're always just passing along, you know, resources and, you know, connecting others with each other. I'm gonna jump over here to you, Justin. Uh, you, you're not living in a city like Austin. Um, how much, how much you get off the land? Like how much interaction do you have kind of like off the land or versus like how much time are you spending on the land? Um, well, as me personally, as a, if you know botanists or know plant people, they are pretty weird people um, <laughs> and pretty solitary people, right? This goes kind of around the world. This is not just me, right? People are super, who are 
very good herbalist or very good plants people are often by themselves. Um, so I ain't going nowhere, personally. Um, but um, the, the town center is maybe like 20 minutes away or something like that. So it's very accessible. We actually were the last stop on the bus line. So people can't, not many people use that, but people have in the past to be able to come to our space because that's important for us to, for people, we didn't plan it that way, it just happened. But it was important for us not to move too far out when we were looking for land because we could have bought land, you know, way far out in the, you know, the hinterlands of the county. Um, but that would have meant that like a lot of the population that we wanted to be uh, coming to the space would, would not have had as much access to it, right? Um, and so, you know, we're not in a very heavily rural area. I would call it rural light, um, which is fine for me. I don't need to live in the complete sticks, but it's nice. I don't have to see anybody if I don't choose to. Um, but I would say that there's a lot of people who enjoy, and, and just around our area, the, a lot of people who enjoy coming to our space as a place of, like, rest. You understand? Because, like, it's not, it's, it's not in the city. Right, it, it gives people to have a break. They come and they basically just turn their kids loose because you can, right? You don't have to really watch them and they're not gonna get into anything. Um, they just go off running in the direction and we're like, see you later, you know what I mean? You know, stay off this property line or whatever. But that feeling of sort of like unrestrictedness, I think is important, especially for black people who feel so policed often, like, and I don't mean necessarily by the police, I mean that too, but just in, in spaces, in urban spaces all the time, somebody sort of always sort of looking at you, even if you're renting like a, a community center or something, people are like breathing down your neck, what you gonna do, how long you gonna be there, your music's too loud, we don't like the smell of your food, all this <laughs> stuff, right? All that kind of like very, um, uh, I would call it like soft policing, right? And we have rental spaces, so we have a community, uh, open community center, that people can come and rent for weddings and what all. We have a pavilion that people can come and rent and we have, we now just just now have like housing that people can come and stay at. That's brand new. Um, and so it gives people, and this is part of our intention in even getting the land, it gives people a chance to sort of like decompress and just kind of like take some deep breaths without having to like, you know, without having to, you know, be in spaces where you're over-policed. And, COVID really, it was, it, I think it became a lifeline for people during COVID because you could interact with people outside, right? And so a lot of people came there. A lot of people contact us if they're, these are people we know, but contact us when they're having a hard moment in their lives. They were like, can we just come walk? Can we put a fire, can we do a fire? I'm having, you know, somebody died or something. So it ends up being like a respite for people and that's part of what we do too. And so being outside of the city is, I think is helpful for that. Are there, are there, were there any surprises like, you know, that came up that you just didn't expect? Not, not specifically around the cooperative aspect, but just with the land or, or anything that was like, oh wow, I didn't know this was coming. Well, I think it's really difficult to know land, right? I think it's very, very, very difficult. It takes you a really long time, right? Again, we own almost 50 acres. This place is on it that I still haven't explored, right? And I lived there. Because um, you usually take your same little routes from here to there or whatever, but realizing how vast even that, even a piece of land, like, you know, like that is, and I know in Texas, 50 acres is nothing. <laughs> like, this is, that's somebody's, you know, that's somebody's, you know, dollhouse space or something. But, um, 
it still isn't a, a tremendous amount of land and a, and a tremendous responsibility to be, because it's, it's, a, it's a constant relationship. You, you gotta be constantly paying attention to what's happening, right? There's always something to do. Every single moment, something has happened, this thing has happened, this tree fell, this thing happened, uh, there's coyotes over here, you know, there's always something to do. And I think I felt that, that feels surprised, not, not totally surprising, but like the land has its own needs that you gotta account for. Anything like around uh, security um, in terms of like keeping yourself safe in that area? Yeah, um, this is especially true during the presidential election, whenever the storming of the Capitol or whatever happened. We all sort of felt this very like strong, like need to protect because we kind of we're at the the houses are kind of on the road, and we are wary, right? Because we know the history of North Carolina, we know the history of the South, like the the history of land loss and how people and how Black people lose their land or Indigenous people lose their land is like well documented. That's not um, it's not a secret, and so we've taken some measures to make sure that we are secure. We don't publicize where our address is. We don't have signs about where we are. Like, if you know where it is, you know where it is. If you don't, well, then you don't. Um, and yeah, we've taken measures to like make sure things are more secure. Um, we're actually building a fence now with one of our neighbors because we're starting to have problems with them. So that comes with the territory. Um, that comes with the territory of being, well, I'll just say this, we're in a sort of a, not a legal thing. We have all the legal power in this particular thing, but what ha we have some white neighbors, and there's just something about them that they feel like they wanna police what we're doing on the land. Like, they cannot help it, right? And so, I know this, I was not surprised by this. Again, I, my, my mother's family comes from a long line of landowners, and that's a constant thing. Right? If you own enough land, you're going to have white neighbors, and that is going to is getting ready to be a problem. Right? That's just expect that to come in. Expect that as a as a um, as just a reality. Right? So have all your proverbial ducks in a row, metaphorical ducks in a row, because that is that is an issue. When it took, I don't know, we've been there since 2016, so this issue is emerging in the last year and a half. So it took a while, but here we are. And what what are they like? What's the challenge? Is this? Oh, I don't really want to go much? into it. <laughs> I don't really. Want, it's, it's it's really nothing, but it's the it's the it's the way that they're approaching it. You know what I mean? There's they're, they're just, you know, our our private property laws work in such a way is that I'm going to do whatever I want to on my property, and you don't have any say. I mean, I didn't make those rules, right? Y'all's ancestors made those rules but we're gonna follow them now, right? There's, just, there's, a, there's, a, there's this desire to police what black people are doing in all spaces, right? Even when it's literally not your land, when you have no sovereignty in any way, shape, form, or fashion, the desire is so incredibly strong. Um, and so for those of you who are thinking about ha buying land and whoever your neighbors are, because you will always have neighbors, be aware of that. Just be prepared for that eventuality. Thank you for that. Lisa, um, are there any like future things that you're seeing in terms of food in Austin, things that 
um, are on the horizon or things that you feel like we should be working on as organizations that are led by people of color, things that we should, do you have a vision for that or? Definitely, um, there are a lot of community gardens in Austin. Um, I was thinking about the question you asked about the food plan. Um, I feel like if there was a connection between um, local community gardens and um, the city of Austin to where um, there was more involvement, I think that that would be <clears throat> such a huge fix because they could be put in so many different areas. Um, a lot of the areas that are already mapped out and prepared for that, you know, some of them are um, in areas that are considered um, like food deserts or just, you know, low access to food. And so I can see that being something that um, could help so much, you know, putting them in schools and things like that could, um, you know, provide so much. It's not hard to grow, you know, a lot of food. It does take time and it is a little bit slower, but it's very possible. Um, you can do so much with a small amount of land. So I would like to see more of a connection with the city of Austin and, you know, having them support their local farmers um, more. I, I think that's why, you know, there, there isn't much to say about it. You know, they haven't necessarily reached out to that, you know, part of their, um, you know, to that department, even though it's, you know, it comes from the city. So that would be something that would help a lot. Um, I know, like, when I walk into a grocery store, I, you know, I'm familiar with food. I know what I want. I know what's healthy, what are good options. Um, there are people who might walk into a grocery store and they might not even think twice about going to the produce section or they may not feel comfortable, you know, going into like a Whole Foods or a central market, things like that, like just tearing down that, you know, stigma about who, who gets healthy food and who doesn't. Um, those are things that, you know, we're working on fixing and I would just like to see more connectivity because we're, we're in central Texas. It's very warm all year. Even when it's cold, it's not too cold to grow, um, to grow things. There shouldn't be a shortage of food. There shouldn't be any blockage to that. I agree with that. I think the reason that I'm asking is because, you know, we've had these recent uh, crises with water. Um, anytime there's something going on, I feel like, you know, food, it's like the system is just jacked up. You know, if it's not coming on a truck or whatever, it's like, you know, the shortages and people are scrambling. So like, that's something that I think about is, you know, we are in cities, we're not, you know, we're not in a farm in a cooperative situation, so we're dependent on these systems, and when they fail, they fail big. And so, um, you know, I'm very interested in, in, in having more and more conversations about what food do we control that's outside of that system, and how are these networks connected? Because it's hard for me, personally, to like, how does the Sustainable Food Center connect with Urban Roots, connect with, there's all these different things happening, but I feel like it's just so disjointed. And um, I'm not sure what to do about that, but that's a feeling that I have. It's like, it should be more connected. Like, you know, the, the systems and the, whatever they have that connects the trucks to the ATB or whatever, we need something similar to that, you know, in terms of a community aspect of food sharing and things like that. So that's kind of what I see as an issue, but I don't know even know where to start as someone that's just looking at it like, every time things shut down, we're the most affected, <laughs> you know? We're, the, we're in the back of the line, the trucks get to us last, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that I feel like as 
climate change and all these things are becoming more and more of a reality, I feel like as a city and especially as you know, BIPOC-led organizations, we need to come together and think more and more about these things. Um, I'm going to uh, open it up uh, to, to conversation from the crowd. If anyone has any questions um, for, the, for our panelists, we'd love to hear some questions. It's a long walk. You gotta do a, you gotta do a soul train line. You gotta come down. Oh, I wish I could dance. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Thank you for doing this panel. I've been so excited about it. Um, I'm also a farmer and a homesteader. Um, and uh, uh, Say it again, you're a what? A farmer and a homesteader. Okay. And um, I'm curious if you have any um, movements or organizations you'd recommend that are influencing some of the white supremacist policies that hit farmers so hard. Um, just, I, I'm trying to stay tuned into that conversation and, uh, and I'm having trouble finding where to tune into like where you actually, where we can actually like change some of the policies that are affecting things like land ownership and, and, and all that. Real quick, where are you, are you in Texas? No, I, uh, Grew up in rural Illinois and then lived half my life in Chicago and just moved back to rural Illinois. So, okay. yeah. There's an organization called Acres of Ancestry, which works specifically on these issues. They're kind of a lobbying firm in D.C. So you can go look them up. They are working on the policy side, specifically lawyers and other people who are working specifically about black farm, black farm ownership, farm bill, all that stuff. Um, but I would say this, not but, and, because it has nothing to do with it. These systems are designed to work like this. This yeah. is not a coincidence that none of this is. And it is really, it is the corporation that is controlling the policy, right? The corporations control the governmental policies, not the other way around, mm -hmm. right? And so fighting the government is going backwards, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't control those policies. It is the industry that is dictating what can and can't happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, you see, you, we can see this if you like put it, like do any investigation at all, it always goes back to the corporations, right? Yeah, it just true, does. Yeah. This, is a, this, is a corporate, this is a corporatized nation sort of across the board. And so for me, it's important to what we start thinking about collectively is not so much governmental pressure because that's step two, is what does the corporate pressure look like to start to put on these things? Because they are the ones who are influencing policy, not us. We don't have any, we don't have enough power Right? What are they going to do if we say, no, we're not going to do that? Like, we don't care. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> we don't have any say in that way. And so, uh, to me, I think it's important for us to like, really see where the chips are lying mm -hmm. and strike, not strike, I don't mean to sound so martial, but to be able to like, understand where our, where our power play is. And so, doing governments, working from the governmental policy side is important too because there's some real things that the government has done to harm black people and other people like directly from the government that, you know, influenced by policy but it's coming directly from the government. So those are important to do too and where the ultimate source of those, the overarching idea and the reason why we're in this mess essentially, which is a mess to us but not to them, <laughs> is because of, of these corporate interests. So both government, governmental stuff, and the corporate stuff. Now, I don't have any 
good strategies about how you mm -hmm. attack corporations that, that are huge and you know have have nearly infinite resources. But acres of ancestry is a, is from the governmental and from the governmental and, and by the from the federal side. But I would also encourage you to look at your local stuff too. Your um, your county commissioners have a tremendous amount of power. I live in a pretty quote unquote progressive place, right? Where the city city council, ha you know, is like you know you know black people and openly trans people and all kinds of stuff on the city council in terms of like what looks like identity, positive, uh, progressive identity stuff. And the, com the county commissioners who hold all the power over the land are the same old people as always has been, right? So don't get distracted by the shiny stuff. Look for where the power actually is. And it is often in these very, it's, it's often in some dusty room in the back of somewhere that is not on the shiny outside. Fantastic, yes. really helpful answer. Thank you. Yes. Um, are there any other organizations that you could recommend nationally that are, you know, thinking about land and farming, black farmers, things of that nature, just off the top? Let's uh, yeah, there's, there's, I was like, I'm racking my brain because one of the people that works directly in this, there's SAFON, I think it's what it's called, S F F S A F O N, SAFON. Um, there's an organization called RAFI, R-A-F-I. Um, there's several of them, but if you start to get to one, you'll sort of start to find the rest of them. But SAFON, S -A no, it's, it's S -A -A -F -O -N, that's what it is. And then there's RAFI, R-A-F-I. Thank you. If I could also just, yes, real quick, um, when you said local, even though a lot of things are, you know, government or corporate, there is some influence locally. I remember, I think it was a year or two ago, there was some sort of, you know, bill or, and I'm not great with politics, but I'm like, there was something that was, a, you know, to vote for people um, to allow residents to own their own chickens. Mm -hmm. And it didn't pass. And, you know, yep. it's like, that's just one small example of how, yep. if you're aware of, you know, what's going on locally, you can fight and you can make small steps because, yep. I mean, if, I mean, the only reason we have to go to the store to buy eggs is because we don't have our own chickens. You can have one chicken and you don't have to go to the store and buy chickens because they pop out eggs so much. You know, that's just, that's just like one yeah. small example of, yeah. you know, going local and being, yeah. you know, that's being exactly aware of that. Right. So I just wanted to add on to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. We had that same thing. We had the same fight. And, you know, people were up and were in their feelings about people having chickens. I was like, this is not that serious. <laughs> that's a little skit. That's like a little, little skit from a movie right there coming in and talking about chickens. Um, anybody, how many people in here just by show of hands? Like how many people here are like growing food right now? Okay. Okay. Awesome. I have a dying snake plant. I have a dying snake plant. Does that count? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for this panel today. It is really um, thought provoking. I had a question uh, for everyone, but for you specifically uh, regarding the ancestral aspect of it. In, Going back to the land and going back to a community-based uh, system, program, lifestyle, what have you, are there any ancestral traditions that you have noticed have resurged? Is there any education in and around that? Um, anything you can speak to in and around that? Yeah, um, so I, 
I grew up in the suburbs, but my parents grew up what I'm going to call on compounds, right? Both my father's family, my mother's family did, my dad's like extended family, they each had their own little compound, right? And we, if you wanted to go see whoever, you went to their place, right? Where they, everybody, they all lived in the same, you know, half, half mile radius on the same piece of land. And so to me, that's just normal. That's what people do. That's how people live. That is how people live, right? And so it wasn't until after I had, we had been on the land for maybe four or five years and I had driven out of the driveway and I turned around and looked and I was like, my, our, our home place is, uh, we called it Aunt Pearl's house because that's whose house it was. I was like, I just helped to recreate Aunt Pearl's house. Like it was, the land looked the same. My mom came and she was like, this is Aunt Pearl's house. She's like, that's where the cows would be. That's the barn. That's the whatever, right? And so sometimes we end up creating these things that are just coming out of us, you understand, right? Without, that wasn't my intention, <laughs> right? Um, not um, consciously anyway, but I just recreated what I experienced as a kid. Um, that communal living, the, like everybody, everybody was together, we were, everybody's doing the stuff together. Um, and so you said what happens, you know, so you, I think your question is something like, you know, what other ancestral things get to come out when you put that situation back together? Yeah. One of this is the playing of music together, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have the kids and whatever, like, so we have, we're all different kinds of people. So we have people who play bomba, because we have you know, Puerto Rican people in our collective. Bomba is Afro-Puerto Rican drumming and dance. So we do that as, a, as our community thing. Um, like every baby shower, there's going to be bomba, whether you want to hear it or not. Um, every party, there's going to be bomba. It's like our party music. Um, we, other folks um, also do capoeira on the land, so we have that as regular parts of our just, our, li our lives. And one of our other members who used to live in Guinea, um, and he learned a lot of agricultural rhythms, like rhythms specifically for agriculture, he has been teaching the local farmers to in a, in a class, like every month, to do those rhythms. These are farmers playing the agricultural rhythms from Guinea. I was like, no that. Yeah. You run, this is the year 3000. He yeah. is in the year 3000. And I was like, this is what we're, this is what gets to happen when you put the situation back together, right? Because it would be really hard to do that if you weren't on land, because what would be the point, you know what I mean? What would be the point, right? Um, and one of the things I'll say about that is, again, I'm the, I'm the plant scientist part, the plant whisperer, is that plants are like us. They have, fe they have feelings, they feel pain, all those things. One of the things that our ancestors knew, and this is kind of across the world, is that playing music during the harvest time helps to reduce the plant's pain. Because we are hurting them when we are harvesting. Those are, their, those are their offspring, right? Plants do not want their offspring taken away from them. They want them to continue to grow. And so the playing of music during that time helps to soothe that. Right? Our ancestors already knew that. That's why those agricultural rhythms exist. That's not just about having the people keep time. It is also about like, we need this harvest to come back again next year. We can't anger these plants too much or they won't produce for us again. Right? Knowing that we are all in this kind of together and this is what the human part can help to assuage the harm that we're doing. So again, when you put the situation back together, this kind of thing gets to happen. But then there, there, there needs to be a feeling of like stability. I would guess I would say for in order for this to start to happen, where people can just like stop thinking about the immediacy of like 
trying to find food every night to cook that is you know, not causing all these health problems, once you can sort of move past that point and just sort of start to take a breath and be able to think a little bit ahead, then these things can, can start to resurface again. Sure. Um, that was, first of all, that's amazing. I need the ancestral beats. Like, I need to experience <laughs> yeah. that. That sounds beautiful. Um, yeah, that's amazing. But I also wanted to add on um, a great resource is Leah Pinneman mm -hmm. or Soul Fire Farm. Oh, yeah. I think the work that she's doing, and I think she's in New York, like, the work that she's doing is so beautiful. She's constantly connecting with um, indigenous peoples and other like African American um, peoples that are farming, doing herbalist work, and she I think she has her second book out now. And she, you know, she's teaching about how there are so many practices that we do that we don't even realize that they come from Africa. Like for example, um, there's something you might call it lasagna gardening or um, hugel culture. Um, that's actually something that's been done, you know, in Africa. Like you know, we've been growing in like ditches and you know piling up. Um, debris and you know organic matter things like that so um, that's another great resource soul fire farm awesome thank you so much got time for one more question um, man I had two questions okay well <laughs> maybe maybe two okay one more person let me say that all right uh, first question if that's all right is well thank you all for having this panel it's super interesting and enriching um, when it comes to collective land owning how do you future proof or like troubleshoot passing it on to your you know other generations because I imagine like within the family that's hard enough um, so what is how does that work or how do you envision it working so right now it is that people have paid basically a share into this right um, and so there's a we haven't fully worked this out yet because the kids are still small uh, well 11 is the oldest but um, it is not necessarily we want to pass it on like an inheritance like you would, like you normally would because this is how people lose land is actually through those 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 kinds of inheritance inheritances that our grandparents did or our great grandparents did and once they passed on land like you get one piece you get one piece you get one piece that has turned out to be really 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 harmful and a major contributor to land loss over time and so what sort of what we're thinking right now is that like it's not necessarily going to go to those children they can buy in if they want to or they'll have like right of first refusal but it has to be living so that other people who are not necessarily related to us can help to carry it on because it's more important that it that it is carried on than it is connected to some bloodline, right? Because then these kids may not want this. I mean, and it's not fair for us to like push them into it, right? They got their own destinies that may take them off the farm and probably will, right? I think we have, how many kids is it? Six? Probably you, you one. Think? Huh? <laughs> you think? You <laughs> think? I think it's six. You think you got six? I, I th yeah, it's six. Um, I don't know, they keep popping out. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> there's one over there, right? <laughs> um, the, but it doesn't feel fair to hold them hostage to that, right? That was my father's story. Like he wanted, he was, he raced off the farm as fast as he could, and so I don't want to put anybody else through that particular experience. And of of those six, probably one of them will stay. That's my suspicion, right? And they don't need to stay. They, you know, they need to have the foundation of understanding how this part of the life works, and they can go on and move to New York if they want to. Um, but it's more important that it stays active as an idea, as a body, as a land base, as a thought, as a cultural tool than necessarily it's just 
our bloodline. I think that's the, the actual last question that we can do. Um, but um, why don't you give uh, folks like him and others how they can get in touch with y'all on social media yeah. or otherwise? So you can find us at Earthseed Land Collective. Just type that into a Google search. There's other Earthseeds in the world, um, but ours is Earthseed Land Collective. You'll get to us quickly. And for Rooted in Melanin, um, the full name is the Rooted in Melanin Initiative. If you type that into Google, you'll see our website. Um, and then we have social media, um, Rooted in Melanin ATX. So those are two ways you can find us. Okay, I just want to let y'all know that, again, this panel and we also have events tonight. We have, we're doing a, a special party for DJ Chicken George, who's a legendary uh, musician turntablist here in Austin that's going through uh, some cancer uh, therapy right now. Um, we're having a party for him at the Speakeasy. It's a fundraiser for him. And on Saturday, we also have an event at the Speakeasy as well. You can find out more information about that at vision8291.org. And this is just the beginning of these conversations that Dawa particularly has wants to invest in. Um, we want to, if you know people that are out there that want to get involved in this, not just conversation, but this visioning process of how to make food more accessible to specifically uh, people of color in this city, um, then please you know, hit us up because we wanna be a part of fostering that conversation, but also that vision, that action. Um, because you know we have enough conversations, I feel like, enough podcasts, enough things going on. We, we, you know, we, have to take, we have to take action. So with that said, a little action that you can take to support what we're doing here, um, moving forward with South by Southwest and otherwise is you can go over there and if you have even $5 makes a difference, you can scan one of those QR codes and help us to continue this work that we're doing. The money that you donate is gonna go to five, six specific grassroots organizations that are working with the unhoused community, that are working with um, under-resourced, low-income youth, um, and just doing great work in the, in the city. So all the money that we raise outside of the cost of bringing people like Justin and bringing our panelists and things like that is going directly to six grassroots organizations in Austin that are POC led and that are doing incredible work. So our goal is to raise 50,000 for those groups and you know we're, we're doing our best to hit that. So if you wanna be a part of that, please scan one of those codes on your way out or you can go to the website and you can donate to the website. Thank y'all so much for coming out. Our next panel is about water. So you know we're talking about the importance of food if you don't have water for three days, you out of here. You up out of here. You can last a while. I don't know if y'all ever done a cleanse or you done a fast. You can, you can go weeks without food if you just, you know, you keep your mind right, you know. But water, three days without water, you out of here. And we have had incredible uh, crises recently in Texas, but in Austin specifically, where our water's been cut off. And um, we need to think about this as a community. So we're having an individual named Moses West that's gonna speak, gonna talk about what he's doing. He invented a machine that called the um, Atmospheric Water Generator, which pulls water from the atmosphere. He's been to Flint, he's been to Jackson, he went to Vieques after the earthquake in Puerto Rico, and he's delivered thousands of gallons of water to people that have not had access to clean drinking water. So uh, again, as an organization, these are conversations that we not only want to have, but we also want to be solution-oriented about them because we are faced with very complex issues as human beings right now. It's not just people of color, obviously it's all of us, right? But we have to think about how we need these things to be.
right? Because other people, they like he said, and we've been saying, like they have their own ideas which don't we don't connect with us, um, that are about control, right? So we have to think about these things, and we also have to take action. So. Thank y'all so much. If you can, stay for that next panel. If not, hope to see you down the road. And if you can, also scan one of those QR codes on your way out. Thank you so much.